Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of suicide and violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Celeste sped up, trying to outpace her mother as they walked through the opulent lobby of the Fister Hotel. The night had been going fine until she mentioned Celeste's boyfriend, Daniel. Her mom launched into a tirade that he was going nowhere and not good enough for her. Now all Celeste wanted was to pack and catch the first plane out of Milwaukee. As she approached the grand staircase, her mom called out to her. Celeste spun around and put her hands on her hips. She told her mother that she didn't want to hear it. Celeste was tired of her expectations. If her mom had screwed up her own life, that was her problem. It didn't give her the right to control everyone else. Celeste's words rang through the empty lobby, but her mom didn't respond. Celeste realized that her mother's face had gone white, and she was trembling. Celeste's heart plummeted. She'd gone too far. She'd been angry, but she hadn't meant to hurt her mother like that. Celeste started to apologize, but her mom cut her off raising a shaking finger to point toward the stairs. Celeste turned and saw a woman standing behind her. She wore an old-fashioned dress with a bodice of blue lace. Her wide skirt and long black hair billowed out around her, as though blown by an unseen wind. Her eyes were wide with terror, and her arms flailed wildly as though she'd lost her balance. But it wasn't the woman's appearance that made Celeste's blood run cold. It was the fact that she floated three feet off the ground. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Fister Hotel. Founded by a man determined to live up to his father's expectations, the Fister is not only one of the grandest establishments in Milwaukee, it's also the most haunted. Coming up, we'll meet the violent spirits dwelling within the Fister's gilded hallways. In 1883, a wealthy German immigrant named Guido Fister decided to build a luxury hotel in downtown Milwaukee. The building would be an eight-story Romanesque revival palace with ballrooms, billiard halls, and state-of-the-art electricity. And when it was completed, it would cement Guido's reputation as a distinguished member of the Gilded Age elite. Unfortunately, Guido passed away before the hotel's opening day, and finishing construction was left to his son. Guido adopted Charles Fister sometime before his 11th birthday. Though Guido never spoke about the boy's adoption, historians theorized that he wanted an heir to take over his company and inherit his vast fortune. From a young age, Guido considered Charles a junior member of the firm. He worked for his father's company at a young age, and he soon became a trusted business partner. 
All his life, Charles had prepared to take on his father's mantle, and the opening of the long-awaited Pfister Hotel was paramount to the Pfister legacy, one that would reaffirm that legacy, or better, or worse. Charles's stomach churned as the carriage rattled through the frozen streets. He peeked out the window as the horses halted before his father's imposing townhouse. Charles hadn't spoken to Guido in weeks, and he felt anxious about the visit. Guido had adopted Charles and his sister when they were 10. While they were young, he took every opportunity to remind them that his patronage did not come without conditions. They needed to carry on his legacy. Therefore, everything they did reflected on him. If they spoke out of turn, if their nails were too long, or if they used the wrong fork at dinner, Guido threatened to send them back to the orphanage. Even as Charles grew to become a shrewd businessman and worthy heir, Guido still criticized him relentlessly. Despite this, Charles still loved his father. He wanted to make him proud, even if it meant making certain sacrifices. But there was one thing that he wasn't willing to give up. Her name was Ida. She was a poor Jewish immigrant working in Guido's leather factory. She could light up a room with her smile. She was kind and clever, and she had the confidence to always speak her mind. To Charles, she was perfect. But if Guido ever learned about their relationship, Charles had no doubt his father would disown him. Guido Fister's son couldn't be associated with a poor immigrant worker from the shop floor. Charles's only consolation was that someday Guido would be gone. And unfortunately, as his father's health continued to decline, Charles knew that day would be soon. He wouldn't be happy when Guido passed, but at least then he and Ida could be together. Charles rang the townhouse bell, and a glum-looking porter greeted him at the door and led him upstairs to his father's bedroom. The drapes were drawn, and the only light came from a few flickering gas lamps along the walls. Guido sat up when Charles entered the room. Aside from the dark circles under his eyes, his face was almost completely colorless. Charles drew up a chair just as his father burst into a rattling cough. When he regained his composure, he didn't mince words. He told Charles that he was ill, and the doctor said he didn't have long to live. Charles's heart sank. He tried to reply, but a lump had formed in his throat. Guido looked straight at his son and spoke in a low voice. There was one thing he needed to address before he passed on. He knew about Ida. One of the other workers had seen them together. Charles stared at his father in disbelief. He didn't understand how he had found out. They had been so careful. But before he could attempt to reply, Guido continued. It was a critical time for the Fister legacy. They were mere months from opening the hotel, and so, to ensure Charles wouldn't sully the family's reputation, Guido had put a provision in his will. If Charles and Ida ever married, or if they ever had a child together, then Charles would lose his inheritance. He could be with Ida, or he could be his father's son. He couldn't be both. Charles sat stunned. He knew that there was nothing he could do to change his father's mind, now he had to face what he had feared the most. He had to make a choice. Charles paced anxiously around Suite 231 as he waited for Ida to arrive. The hotel's grand opening had already begun, and he could hear laughter and a string quartet floating up from the lobby below. 
It had been six months since that terrible day when he'd sat at his father's deathbed. Charles had asked his father for 24 hours to make his decision. Guido wasn't pleased, but he allowed it. But by the next day, when Charles returned to say that he'd chosen his father, it was already too late. Guido was dead. After losing his father, Charles couldn't bring himself to tell Ida the truth, so he'd put it off, focusing entirely on opening the hotel. He met with investors and hired builders. He was his father's son by day and Ida's lover by night. But lately, things had changed. Ida had inquired when she could meet his sister. She wanted to know what they would name their children. Just yesterday, she asked when they were going to be married. Charles had said he couldn't think about that, not when they were only a day away from the grand opening and the elevators weren't even finished yet. He told her they'd talk about it once the Fister was officially up and running. This placated Ida, but Charles knew he owed her the truth. A knock came at the door and Charles opened it to find Ida outside. She wore a gray evening dress with pale blue lace at the bodice. Her hair flowed over her slim shoulders like a waterfall of black silk. Charles's chest tightened. He hated himself for what he had to do. He took a deep breath and asked her to take a seat. Ida's brow knitted in concern. She asked what was the matter. Charles turned away from her and looked at the floor. He knew there was no use in delaying it any longer, so he cleared his throat and got right to the truth. He told her they could never be married or have children. If they did either, it would mean the end of his inheritance and his father's legacy. Ida's face went red and her eyes watered. Charles scrambled to speak. He told her he was sorry. This wasn't the end. They could be together, just never in public. Ida looked at him for a moment, weighing her options, before getting up and heading back out into the hallway. Charles ran after her as she headed toward the spot where the grand staircase met the empty elevator shaft. When she reached the stairs, she turned. There were tears running down her cheeks. She looked at Charles and told him the truth, her words landing like blows to his chest. She was pregnant, and she would rather die than give birth to the child of a man who didn't love her. Before Charles could say anything, Ida leapt into the open elevator shaft. Time slowed, and for a moment, she seemed to float, her dress billowing in an updraft and her hair streaming out behind her. Then... She was gone. In the years that followed, the memory of Ida's death was too much for Charles, so he tried to forget. He threw himself into his work, managing the hotel, expanding his father's businesses, and investing in new enterprises. He got rid of any trace of Ida in his home and burned every picture of her. He even sold every building she'd ever stepped foot in, except, of course, for the hotel. As much as he wanted to rid himself of Ida, that building was Guido's most cherished legacy. Charles couldn't give it away. Three decades passed, but still, the sting of his heartbreak never truly faded. Finally, Charles decided that if he ever wanted peace, he needed to sever his final connection with Ida. As much as it hurt, he needed to sell the hotel. 
It was a warm spring day, and Charles sat at the desk in his suite in room 231. Only an hour ago, he'd signed over the Fister to a trusted employee. When he left his room, he'd be doing it for the last time. He would finally be free of the memories that tormented him. Charles stood up, took one last look at the room, and approached the door. As he put his hand on the knob, a sudden chill came over him. An icy wind blew through the hotel room, sending a shiver up his spine. Charles had the strange thought that something terrible waited for him on the other side of the door. He told himself that he was being silly and went to try the knob again. But before he could, he heard a voice calling his name. He recognized it right away. It was Ida. His hands went cold and he began to tremble. He backed away from the door, but suddenly the left side of his body went numb. He couldn't speak or force his limbs to move. Urine trickled down his leg. Charles fell to his knees as the door opened. There was Ida, looking just as she had the last time he'd seen her, floating in the air, her hair flying out behind her. Charles tried to scream, but the only sound he could make was a low gurgle. His vision narrowed. The last thing he heard before everything went dark was a whisper in his ear. It was Ida telling him not to worry. They'd never be apart again. In April 1927, Charles Pfister sold his hotel to a trusted manager and retired from running his father's companies. A few months later, he suffered a massive stroke and passed away. To some, it almost seemed as if the work of preserving his father's legacy had been the only thing keeping him alive. He'd never married or had any children. Although according to rumor, he was briefly engaged to a young woman who died tragically after falling down an empty elevator shaft. Legend has it that the ghost of Charles's long-dead love never left the hotel, and that she still floats through the gilded hallways of the Fister to this day. Coming up, the spirit of Charles Fister has a desperate warning for anyone willing to listen. The CIA. They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public, and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. 
The Pfister Hotel is almost overwhelming in its opulence. Ornate Victorian chandeliers hang from the frescoed ceilings, and gold filigree lines the marble balconies that overlook the lobby. And hanging throughout the hotel is an assortment of valuable paintings. The Pfister's impressive art collection has inspired a new tradition at the hotel. The Artist-in-Residence program selects one up-and-coming artist every year to set up shop in a dedicated studio space within the Pfister. The studio has floor-to-ceiling windows that look out on a hallway just off the lobby. Though guests are encouraged to visit, it can get quiet in the corridor. With no windows to the outside, there's nothing to mark the passage of day turning into night. And after hours spent staring at an empty canvas, it could be easy to lose track of reality. You might begin to see things that aren't there. Or maybe even some that are. Nisha sat in the cluttered art studio, staring at her half-finished portrait, when her cell phone rang. It was her dad, again. He'd read an article over the weekend about the pre-med program at the University of Chicago, and he had not stopped bothering her about it since. Nisha pressed ignore. She didn't feel like defending her life choices for the millionth time this week. Truthfully, she had a hard time defending them to herself lately. Her residency at the Pfister ended in two weeks, and she still didn't have anything else lined up. Not only that, but she hadn't been drawing anything new. Well, actually, it wasn't so much that she hadn't made anything. She just kept sketching the same thing over and over. Nisha looked down at her canvas and groaned. She'd drawn yet another portrait of a man about her dad's age. He had a round, dimpled face that might have looked almost childlike were it not for the wrinkles around his eyes. He had a look of bitter disappointment that especially reminded her of her father. She'd gotten her inspiration from the portrait of the hotel's founder hanging in the lobby. She had a dream about him on the first night of her residency. In her nightmare, a strong wind whipped through the lobby. The long-dead owner loomed over her from the top of the grand staircase. He yelled at her, but she couldn't hear what he said. Nisha had woken up in a cold sweat and known immediately that the first work of her residency had to be of that man. What she hadn't realized was that every subsequent painting or drawing would be of him as well. Whether she did it in charcoal or pencil, it was always him. She wasn't doing it on purpose. Every time she started a new piece, the same image just emerged. Nisha sighed. It was probably time to leave. She stuffed her supplies into her beat-up shoulder bag and picked it up. But her old bag had finally had enough. The seams ripped, spilling Nisha's sketchbooks and pencils all across the studio. The last thing to flutter to the ground was a glossy pamphlet for the University of Chicago. Nisha groaned in frustration. She didn't have the money to pay her rent, let alone buy a new bag. Her residency stipend wasn't even enough for her to afford living expenses and art school tuition. She might have asked her dad for help, but he made it very clear that his financial support depended on her making career choices that he approved of. Nisha sighed and picked up the University of Chicago pamphlet. Going back to school would make everything so much easier. Maybe her dad was right. Maybe it was time to grow up. The old grandfather clock in the hall chimed. 
moment, and an icy chill swept through the studio. Nisha glanced up at the hallway. Shock ran through her like a bolt of electricity. There was a man in the window. The man from the portraits. He stood a few inches from the glass, staring directly at her. Nisha's heart pounded as she jumped off her stool and backed away from the window. The lights flickered as the man pounded on the glass and screamed. Though his mouth was open in agony, no sound left his throat. Then, everything went dark. After a moment, the lights flicked back on. Nisha stared at the window in shock. The man was gone. Her stomach lurched as she flung open the door and ran out of the studio. She glanced up and down the hallway, but no one was there. She rubbed her temples. It was nearly 11 p.m. She was probably just tired. She needed to go home and get some rest. Tomorrow, she'd come back and paint something totally new. Maybe a still life or a tableau. Anything but the same portrait of that man. That night, Nisha tossed and turned. When she did sleep, the man from the painting haunted her dreams. Although she was exhausted the next morning, she quickly got into the swing of things. She worked through lunch, and before she knew it, the grandfather clock in the hall struck three. Nisha took a step back from her desk and observed her work. She ran her hands through her hair and groaned. It was the same portrait she'd made 25 times before. She didn't understand how this had happened. She thought she was drawing a woman with curly hair and slim bare shoulders. But somehow, the hair had come out straight and the shoulders had morphed into an old-fashioned suit. Nisha gathered her things and grabbed her coat. She usually stayed at the studio late into the night, but there was no way she was doing that today. Honestly, she needed some time off. Maybe she wouldn't come back next week. Maybe she'd never come back at all. As Nisha entered the main lobby, her cell phone rang. She sighed. It was her father again. She supposed she couldn't avoid him forever. She stepped into one of the empty ballrooms and closed the door behind her, shutting out the hubbub of the noisy lobby. When she answered the phone, her father launched right into one of his usual lectures. The application deadline for the University of Chicago was coming up. It wouldn't take that much work, and he would help her, not just with the application, but with tuition as well, even housing and expenses. He reminded her that just because she applied, it didn't mean she had to go. Nisha sighed. Maybe she should just give in. At the very least, it would get him off her back for a while. She took a deep breath and told her father that, fine, if it meant he would stop bothering her, then she would apply. Before he could respond, the line filled with static. Nisha yelled into the phone, but she couldn't hear a thing. The screen went black, and the device suddenly burned her fingers. Nisha shrieked and dropped her phone. That's when she felt it again. That same freezing air from the night before seeped into her bones. A wind picked up in the ballroom. As she looked around for an open window, Nisha noticed something that made her blood run cold. A figure stood in a darkened corner of the room. Her heart pounded as the man took a step forward and a shaft of light fell across his face. The same face she'd been painting day after day. His mouth moved, 
forming silent words that she couldn't understand. Nisha backed up. As she reached for the door behind her, the man advanced. She turned and fled. She ran through the crowded lobby, pushing tourists out of her way. She didn't even think about where she was going. She just needed to get away from that man. Nisha sprinted down a hallway and found herself back in front of the studio. She glanced behind her and saw him still steadily advancing on her. Nisha ran into her studio and slammed the glass door, locking it behind her. She took a deep breath and tried to tell herself that she was just seeing things. She wasn't in any real danger. But then, the cold wind picked up in the windowless studio, and the threat suddenly felt very real. Nisha crawled under her desk. The wind whirled her drawings into the air. She screamed as the pictures blew past in a flurry of paper. As she watched them in terror, something occurred to her. The drawings were not identical. Nisha stood up, and all at once, the wind died away. Her heart pounded as she gathered up the drawings and arranged them by date. Once she had them in a neat stack, she pressed a thumb against the edge of the pages and fanned through them as though they were a flipbook. Her breath caught in her throat. The pictures were almost the same, but in each one, the man's mouth was in a different position. He was saying something. Nisha flipped through the pictures again and again. Each time, the message became clearer. He was mouthing three words over and over, but she couldn't make out what he was saying. Just then, the cold wind stirred, and the man appeared before her. But this time, she didn't run, and when he moved his lips, she heard his voice for the first time. It was low and gravelly and full of pain. His words were a warning against his own fate the same words she had seen in her drawings, the message he'd been trying to tell her all along. Follow your heart. A small square painting of Charles Pfister hangs in the lobby of the Pfister Hotel. Compared to some of the other works of art nearby, there's nothing especially interesting about the portrait. But for some people, the picture is enough to stop them in their tracks because the face is one they've seen before. Guests and staff at the Pfister have reported catching glimpses of the hotel's founder. He's often seen walking across the minstrel's gallery above the ballroom or making his way down the grand staircase. Perhaps he haunts the old building as a warning, a message to those who aren't true to themselves. Maybe he wants to remind them to love what they do in life, because like him, they may keep doing it for the rest of eternity. Coming up, some Major League Baseball players vow to never set foot in the Fister again. Now back to the story. Ever since it first opened in 1893, the Fister has been a magnet for stars, politicians, and professional sports players. The hotel has hosted a number of presidents and presidential candidates. Elvis Presley stayed at the hotel after a performance in Milwaukee. Joan Rivers and Frankie Avalon have graced the Crown Room stage at the Pfister. And in recent years, it's become the preferred accommodation for many Major League Baseball teams. Most of these celebrities enjoyed an uneventful stay at the Pfister. But for a select few, 
their presence awakens something dark and strange waiting within the walls of the hotel. David tried his best to look unimpressed as he followed his teammates into the ornate lobby. He didn't stare at the painted angels on the ceiling or gawk at the brass sentinels standing between the marble pillars. But when Bobby Chapman gave him a cocky grin and asked what he thought, David just shrugged as though he'd seen a thousand others like it. The truth was, just six months ago, David could never have dreamed of staying at a place like this. That was before he got called up to the big leagues and signed a multi-million dollar contract. Back then, he was just a minor league player who hadn't set foot in a four-star hotel. But here he was, and in many ways, it was because of his stepfather. Glenn was the one who had encouraged David to play baseball in the first place. He'd paid for lessons and Little League, and he'd been David's manager for years. And now that he was in the major league, Glenn wanted to make sure he stayed there. Ever since he signed his contract with the Sox, Glenn had accompanied him on away games. It was Glenn who made sure he didn't waste time hanging out with the guys and got him up early for extra practices. David loved Glenn, but sometimes all that pressure could be hard to deal with. Not that things had been easier in the minor leagues. Back then, his days were long and hard. He'd spent hours on a sweltering greyhound, checked into a rundown motel room that smelled like cigarettes, just to do it all again the next day. But at least he had his teammates. They didn't care about his batting average or how many no-hitters he'd pitched. They were like family, no matter how he played. David hardly knew anything about his new teammates. It wasn't that they weren't nice, but they were millionaire celebrities. They had their pictures on collectible cards and their names on souvenir shirts. He couldn't exactly relate to them. Plus, it was hard to find the time to get to know them. As Glenn often reminded him, a famous player like David Ortiz could afford to take a night off every once in a while. But if he let himself slip for even a minute, then everyone would realize they'd been wrong about him, and he would be right back where he started. As David passed the lounge, Bobby Chapman called out to him. He asked if David wanted to join them for a drink. But before David could respond, Glenn came up from behind him and clapped him on the back. He told Bobby, maybe some other time. David needed to get his rest for the game tomorrow. Bobby raised an eyebrow and asked what he was talking about. They were playing the Diamondbacks tomorrow, and that team hadn't won a game in months. David didn't have anything to worry about. David's cheeks flushed. He shrugged and agreed that he was just feeling beat. Of course he wasn't. He'd slept on the plane, and he'd gotten a full nine hours of sleep every night since he signed his contract. But that didn't matter. Only what Glenn thought was best mattered. David put his head down and hurried toward the grand staircase. As he and Glenn climbed the stairs, David surveyed the paintings hanging along the walls. One featured a group of dead birds dangling from a string. In another, a glum woman slumped beside a lifeless gray river. A third showed a terrified girl leaning away from a leering man with yellow teeth. David shivered. As he got farther from the hustle and bustle of the lobby, the air got colder and the light grew dimmer. Long shadows fell across the marble columns. After Glenn headed toward his own room, David quickened his pace. He was glad they weren't staying in Milwaukee too long. There was something about this place that he didn't like. As he approached room 231 at the end of the hall, 
David stopped in his tracks. The door was shrouded in darkness, and for a moment, he thought he saw a figure standing in front of it. David closed his eyes and took a deep breath. When he looked again, the shadow was gone. David let himself into the room, undressed, and stepped into the shower. He stood under the stream of water and tried to let the stress of the day wash away. Clearly, the pressure was getting to him. He knew he hadn't seen anything. He was just paranoid. He had to be careful, or else the stress could affect his game. But just as he started to relax, he heard a thump from the bedroom. David froze. For a moment, there was silence. Then came another thump. He slowly reached for the shower knob and turned off the water. A chill ran up David's spine. He called out and heard another thump in response. David looked frantically around the bathroom. He'd heard stories about crazed fans stalking players. He hadn't thought he was famous enough for that, but he didn't want to take any chances. He grabbed the only thing he could see through the thick fog of steam, a hairdryer sitting on the counter. David gripped it tight, took a deep breath, and then flung open the door. His shoulders sank in relief. The room was just as he'd left it. He'd opened the old window, and now it was blowing back and forth in the breeze, bumping against the wall. As David leaned out to pull it shut, a freezing gust of wind rushed past him. He frowned. If he didn't know better, he could have sworn that it came from inside the room. David shook his head. He was just jittery. He closed the window and went back to finish his shower. As he stepped into the bathroom, David's whole body went cold. The steam had cleared from the room, but the mirror was still foggy. And written across it was a message. It read, If you're not living, you're killing yourself. David's stomach churned. He tried to get himself under control. It was probably one of his teammates playing a trick on him. Or maybe it was something the last person who stayed in this room had written and the maid had just forgotten to wipe down the mirror? Whatever the explanation was, he didn't have time to deal with it. He needed to sleep and prepare for tomorrow's game. He was going downstairs to ask for a different room. As he pulled on his pants in the bedroom, David felt another gust of wind blow past him. He looked up at the window and froze. It wasn't open. The wind grew stronger and the lights flickered. David's heart pounded. Then, as he looked in the mirror, he saw a man looming behind him. David yelped and whipped around. Standing there was an older man wearing an old-fashioned suit. David scrambled backwards as the man stepped forward. But just as the man opened his mouth to say something, David's feet slipped on the wet tile and his head hit the floor. Right before his vision went dark, David only had one thought. He wished he hadn't let the pressure crush him, that he could have just let himself be happy. David awoke on the floor and looked up to see Bobby Chapman leaning over him. David sat up with a start and looked frantically around the bathroom, but the old man was gone. Bobby gave him a concerned look and said he'd come by to check on him when he found him on the floor. Was he all right? For a moment, David was speechless, but assured Bobby he was fine, just a little stressed. Bobby nodded sympathetically. He knew that feeling. The pressure could be a lot. 
but hanging out with the team always helped ground him. Did David want to join them downstairs? David felt a jolt of panic. What would Glenn think? Then he shook his head. Who cared what Glenn thought? He still didn't understand what had happened. But he had learned something, but he wasn't going to forget any time soon. David smiled and took Bobby's hand. Finally, he was going to relax. Among the Fister's celebrity guests, professional baseball players have talked frequently about the hotel's hauntings. It began in 2001, when then-LA Dodgers third baseman Adrian Beltre claimed to hear a persistent knocking at his hotel room door. Then there was former infielder Brendan Ryan, who in 2009 witnessed a strange floating ball of light accompanied by a mysterious chill. Atlanta Braves player Pablo Sandoval had to cut a stay short after his iPod played music on its own while he was showering. And in 2012, right fielder Bryce Harper claimed that something moved a table across the room and threw his clothes onto the floor while he was sleeping. All these instances would be eerie enough on their own, but the fact that their victims are professional baseball players is even more of a mystery. Perhaps it has something to do with the pressure. There are so many tense, high-stakes moments in baseball, times when the entire team is relying on one player. If they screw up, it means letting down all those people. Maybe that's something the ghosts of the Fister can understand. It's undoubtedly a feeling that Charles Fister would have recognized. His whole life was about meeting his father's high expectations. But maybe the most important pressure isn't the kind that comes from those around us, but the kind created when we deferred our dreams in order to meet someone else's expectations. That nagging voice in the back of your head that tells you you're throwing away your life in pursuit of someone else's goals. When you make a mistake that big, it might haunt you for the rest of your days. And if you make it at the Fister, it could be even longer. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast. Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we're uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.